Well, this last Sunday night, the Ogden household received a a rather unusual phone call. During our recent vacation, we had stayed at a hotel that is a national chain. And in the early morning of our stay, our, our toilet was stopped up and threatened to overflow with each flush. And so we naturally called the front desk to see if this could be corrected. We were informed that there would be no service personnel that would arrive for another 90 minutes, but they would be glad to offer us a plunger to plunge the toilet. (laughs) So the man dutifully arrived at our door and handed me the plunger and then left. And I thought to myself, well, this is kind of unusual, don't you think? Uh, Since we are guests at your hotel, don't you think you should come in and do a little plunging yourself? Well, I just thought that, but I didn't say it. Well, after some exertion, the plunger did its job. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that was a little strange that guests would have to be their own plumbers. So later that morning, since we were still kind of hanging around, I said to the woman at the front desk in as polite a tone as I possibly could, uh, don't you think somebody should have come and handled that yourself? And she acknowledged that that was probably true without any affect of regret at all. She simply said, I will make a note of this in the computer. (laughs) And then my wife, noticing the comment card, uh, filled out the comment card and noticed on the comment card, 100% satisfaction or you don't pay. Well, we noticed that, but we didn't say anything about it. Thought in the grand scheme of things, this is just a little blip on the screen. We actually left that day, never mentioned it again without any further thought. And then the phone call comes Sunday evening from the manager of the hotel, some two-plus weeks after we stayed there, terribly embarrassed that we had to do our own plumbing. So she was apologizing for this. She said that guests should never be put in this position. Uh, This is something that staff should do. In fact, she had already reversed the charges on our credit card and was deeply apologetic for that. And then she said, can you describe who it was that arrived at your door? so that I can and talk with this person and make sure that this person understands that this is not acceptable behavior. This is not the way that we want to represent our hotel to our guests. Well, I tell you the story because it kind of sets up our theme for this morning around forgiveness. Through the first three weeks on our Lenten series, I think you could say that we focused on the one who's been the injured party who needs to find grace to offer forgiveness to someone else. Today, I want to turn the tables. Sometimes we are in the position where we have hurt someone else, and we need to be the one that goes and asks for forgiveness of that someone else, like the hotel manager did coming to us and asking for our our forgiveness. I think it's a very good model. So this morning, I want to focus in on the fact that there are times we are the guilty party, and we need to know how to ask for forgiveness of someone else. Now, from the outset, I want us to acknowledge that uh, it's probably far easier to recognize when we have been hurt than when we have hurt someone else. We're far more quickly able to come to terms with faults in others than when recognizing our own faults within ourselves. And I think one of the reasons for this is that being a victim of somebody else's injury leads us to a kind of a perverse sense of superiority. When some injustice is inflicted upon us, we kind of feel righteously indignant about it all. I mean, hurt causes a rush of moral purity to flow through our veins. We are good. They are bad. (laughs) It's easy to divide life into those categories. 
And when somebody has injured us, we tend to look at that person through the injury only and freeze them in time as if that is all there is about that person. But when it comes to acknowledging that maybe we have done something to somebody else, we have been the bond breaker, it seems to take a much longer time to come to terms with that. Yet as followers of Christ, forgiveness is a mark of a Christian. Whether it's offering forgiveness or asking to be forgiven, we should be known for this quality. This is what Christians should excel at. And hopefully as we grow in the love of Christ, we are inflicting less pain, uh, even though we know at times because we are finite, fallible people, we will hurt the ones that we love. In fact, I oftentimes think with all the relationships I'm managing, and maybe you think this way too, I've got to be failing somebody at some time in my life. So today, we're going to look at what's required to offer a sincere apology in a way that can be embraced by the one that we have hurt. But let me start with a a general reminder. We can never genuinely and authentically give forgiveness or ask for forgiveness unless we have received forgiveness from God. All forgiveness proceeds from the recognition of our need and appreciating the cost that has been paid by Christ to purchase our lives. And I think this is the very point of the story that Jesus tells about the unmerciful servant. You might recall he tells a story about a king who decides to call in his debts. And one of his servants owes him 10,000 talents. Now, Jesus chooses here a ridiculous number. You might as well have said that this servant owed the equivalent of the national debt, that he had to pay that back. In fact, 10,000 talents, by one calculation, is about 5 million denarii. A denarii was a day's wage, and so I did the mathematics here. If the person worked 365 days a year, it would take 13,698 years to pay off this debt. So what's Jesus' point? We have accumulated an unrepayable debt before a holy God. And the only thing that God can do is essentially cancel the debt that we could never repay. Never. And when we understand that, (laughs) then we have uh, a reservoir from which to draw. Now let me take that same point and let's see if we can grasp it on an emotional level before we get into talking about what it means to ask for forgiveness. Becky Pippert tells a very moving story in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, of a young woman who wanted to talk to her after giving a conference speech. A woman hung around, and they found a private place where this woman could make a confession to Becky. And in tears, she uttered this confession. During the time when she was engaged to be married to a youth pastor, she became pregnant. And she knew that if that had been discovered, then this youth pastor would never be a youth pastor. And so they made the very tragic decision to have an abortion. But then she said the day of her marriage, walking down the aisle, was the worst moment of her life. She was thinking, you are a murderer. You're so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know who you are, and so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. This is what she was thinking as she was walking down the aisle on the day of her wedding. And so sobbing, she says to Becky, 
I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. How could I have murdered an innocent life? And as Becky was listening to her story, there was a thought that came through her mind that she wondered whether it was from God or not, but then she decided to plunge ahead. And so Becky said to this young woman, I don't know why you're so surprised. This isn't the first sin that has led to death. It's the second. This woman was stunned. (laughs) Where's Becky going with this? My dear friend, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent person who ever lived, Becky said. Do you think there are any sins of yours that Jesus didn't die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. We all sent him there. If you have done it before, then couldn't you have done it again? Well, the young mother stopped crying. And she said, you're absolutely right. I've done something even worse than killing my baby. My sin drove Jesus to the cross. Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becky? I came to you saying that I had done something worse, worse thing imaginable, and you're telling me I've done something worse than that? But Becky, if the cross shows that I am far worse than I ever imagined, it also shows me my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? And then there was a look of awe in this young woman's eyes. Talk about amazing grace. And now those tears of sorrow turned to relief and gratitude. You see, the cross tells us that we are accepted at our worst, that we're all capable of far worse than we can imagine and are forgiven by Christ. When we need, in order to forgive or ask forgiveness, is the humility that comes from knowing that Christ felt the wounds of our sin and turned them into the means of our forgiveness. And so from this reservoir of grace, we either offer forgiveness or ask forgiveness from God and those we hurt. So what are some of the necessary elements to make it right with those that we have wronged? I'm going to give you six steps to a very faithful apology this morning. And I want to reference two resources for further study that uh, you might find very helpful They are the book by Gary Smalley and Jennifer Thomas called The Five Languages of Apology. And then Ken Sandy has written a very helpful book called The Peacemaker. And as we go into these six steps that I'm going to lay out before you, I want you to have in mind a situation, a context, where you have in the past or maybe even the present have had to or currently need to ask someone to forgive you. Got that situation? Now, if some of you cannot come up with anything this morning, let me pause and it's time for you to be able to leave. My guess is that all of us have something in mind that we can bring to this moment. So step number one in that process of an apology is this. 
to live with the truth of your injurious word or deed until you can acknowledge the hurt that you have inflicted on somebody else. In my experience, it takes some time to live with the truth about ourselves to get to that point where we are ready to say, yes, I have sinned against someone else. Situation I bring this morning and that I'm reflecting on even more is when I was senior pastor of a church, we let go a staff member from that church. And the more I reflect on this way that we did this, I realized how injurious and painful it was and how wrong the process was. But it took me about 18 months to live with the truth of the way we had done that before I was ready to go to this person and say, can I meet with you? I need to ask for your forgiveness. In our scripture this morning, this morning, that in Psalm 32, King David ran from God for about a year after his violation of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. God would not let him go. And David describes the debilitating effects on his body, on his life, as he was running from God, from recognizing the truth in his life. We read in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You see, followers of Jesus Christ are friends of truth. We're willing to sit with truth in the presence of the Holy Spirit over time until we are convicted of what we need to be convicted of. Gerald May, a Christian psychiatrist, elevates the practice of truth-seeking this way. He says, honesty before God requires the most fundamental risk of faith we can take, the risk that God is good and that God does love us unconditionally. It is taking this risk that we discover our dignity, to bring, truth of our, of, of our, to bring the truth of ourselves just as we are to God, just as God is, is the most dignified thing we can do in life. David put his staying with truth like this. Surely you desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. So the first step is to allow us to come under the conviction of the Spirit about what we have said or done and arrive at that place of truth. Second step is to go to the person or persons involved to express your regret by saying, I am sorry. When we offer our confessions of sinfulness before God, we do it with an acknowledgement of the pain that we have inflicted upon God that took Jesus to the cross, just as this young woman had done in her situation around the abortion. So when we go to those we have hurt, I am sorry, though, can't just be words. It can't just be going through the motions. It just can't be a, a pro forma thing. Because I am sorry has to come with a sense of identification with the pain that we have inflicted upon someone else. We might say something like, I know now how hurt deeply I hurt you. That causes me immense pain. I'm truly sorry for what I did. The manager of the hotel convinced me of her contrition by repeating over and over again that this is not the way that they want to behave. You might recall from last week that Pastor Meyer told us the story of Joseph and his brothers and the pain his brothers inflicted upon Joseph. Now, God had another plan for Joseph and brought him to second in command next to the Pharaoh in Egypt and the plan to rescue his family. But the time of accounting came when Joseph, the one who held all the cards, the power, would potentially balance the books 
with his 12, with his brothers that had inflicted the pain upon him. And so the brothers knew that they had to cast themselves before Joseph. And the scripture says, his brothers came and threw themselves down before him. And they said, we are your slaves. Sorrow means showing that we have understood the pain that somebody has gone through because of our deeds. The book Picking Cotton tells the remarkable story of reconciliation between Ron Carton and Jennifer Thompson Canino. As a college student, Jennifer was brutally raped and fingered Ron Carton as her attacker. She was convinced that this was who had done it. His face was fixed in her mind, no doubt about it. And so when she testified at trial, she fingered Ron Carton. After 11 years in prison, DNA evidence showed that Ron Carton was not her attacker. It was somebody else who looked a lot like him, and then he was released from prison. The moment came when Ron Cotton and Jennifer Thompson Canino would face each other for the first time after he was out of prison. They gathered together in a pastor's office, and Jennifer spoke first. Mr. Cotton, if I spent the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to how I feel. Can you ever Forgive me. But the interesting point here was Ron Cotton's response. Sometimes, he says, people don't have to say a thing. If you look directly in their eyes, it's all there. I could see that she was truly sorry. It was as plain as day. If she could have gone back and turned back the hand of time, she would have changed what had happened. He received her contrition because it was written all over her. Step three is to accept responsibility for the injury by simply saying, I was wrong. No excuses, no qualifications, just own up to what we have done. This is what David had to do. You might recall in the dynamics of the story, King David runs from God for about a year, as we've already said, and then God sends the prophet Nathan to come after him. And Nathan sucks him in by telling him a story. Tells him a story about a rich man who's exploited a poor man. And of course, David, when he hears the story, gets all indignant over the, the power abuse of this rich man, not seeing himself at all. And then Nathan says, You are the man. And it stops David in his tracks. No excuses, no qualifications. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. And I might say a few others as well. David goes on to write in the psalm, For I have know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David made no excuses. He offered no alibis, no qualifications to what he had said. So if you want to ruin a sincere apology, (laughs) make excuses or qualifications. 
Say something like this. I'm sorry if I've done something to upset or offend you. What does the person hear when you make that kind of an apology? I'm sorry that you're so easily offended and you have such thick, thin skin uh, that I have to make this apology. I actually don't even know what I've done wrong, so I don't even know how, what I'm supposed to do right. I hope you can get over it. So anytime we hedge by softening an apology with words like, perhaps I was wrong. Maybe I can try harder. I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, but you really made me upset. <laughs> That's a non-apology. And what I'm saying is, take full responsibility for your part in contributing to the breakup of the relationship. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, I'm 40% wrong, but they're 60% wrong. Take responsibility for your 40% without qualification and offer your apology. Step four, if possible, make restitution. What can I do to make it right is the question we want to answer here. If there's something you can do to make it right, then do it. I think of Zacchaeus, called down from the tree, invites Jesus into his home. The day of salvation has come to his home. And what's Zacchaeus' response? Lord, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jennifer Thompson Canino could not restore Ron Carton the 11 years that he had taken from him. And when the state wanted to give him only $5,000 a year for the 11 years that he had served in prison, Jennifer stepped in and pleaded his case on his behalf. He wrote, she wrote a letter to the powers that be saying that she had contributed to this man's situation and so had the state. And then she wrote these words. Can you give back his years, that life, those moments? No. But we can try to make his new life, his future, his dreams easier and real. Please consider his requests. He's an extraordinary man with an extraordinary potential. As society, let's not make another mistake. Today, Jennifer Cotton, Ron Cotton and Jennifer Thompson Canino are dear friends. Their families know each other. They present together regularly on behalf of falsely accused victims. Step five is to genuinely repent, which means I will change my ways. After David's tragic abuse of power with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, his desire was to live differently. He didn't want to ever relive this behavior again. He not only wanted to be forgiven, he wanted to change his ways. And so we read in Psalm 51, 10 and 11, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul makes a distinction between what he calls godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is simply being sorry that one was caught. (laughs) Worldly sorrow is shame of being exposed and the inconvenience of it all. 
There was a recent interview of Bernie Madoff that appeared in the newspapers. And even though Bernie Madoff was asking himself the question, how could I have done this? He was also qualifying and justifying it, saying, I'm not the kind of person I'm being portrayed. I'm a good person. Worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Paul writes about godly sorrow that it brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The hotel manager expressed repentance when she wanted to know who had handed me that plunger so that she could talk to that person and say, never again. That's not the way we behave. When I think back to the situation I bring to this message, when I met with the staff member that I needed to apologize to, I wanted to learn from that so that I did not repeat that behavior again and harm someone else. That's repentance. Step six is to request forgiveness by saying, will you forgive me? Now, this is the most humbling moment in the restoration process. Just imagine those words coming from your mouth in front of this person or situation that you are visualizing today. Will you forgive me? David says in Psalm 32, 5 and 51, 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The spirit of coming clean is what we need to do when we come before someone else. But it's a very humbling thing to sit before somebody and ask them, will you forgive me? It's a helpless moment. We're placing ourselves in the merciful hands of someone else. We're asking for grace. Hamilton Beasley speaks of the fear of asking for forgiveness. He writes, apologizing is making an admission that we have erred. And we don't like having to do that. It makes us vulnerable because we are requesting something, forgiveness, that we think only the other person can grant. And we might be rejected. Now, there's a very good chance if you follow the steps that I've outlined so far, when you get to this point, the person is more than ready to forgive you. When somebody sees contrition in our own spirit, there is a natural movement of the heart to want to reach out and forgive. But if the sin has been particularly egregious, then it may take some time for the person who has been sinned against to offer forgiveness to you. You may need to give that person space before they can respond. Ken Sandy suggests this language. He says, I know I have hurt you deeply, and I can understand why you would have a hard time forgiving me. I hope you will be able to forgive me soon because I very much want to be reconciled. In the meantime, with God's help, I will do all that I can to repair the damage in our relationship. We may need to give space until some person can get to that place of forgiveness. Of course, our desire for ultimate outcome would be reconciliation, that there would be peace, a truce, a burying of the hatchet, as we say, 
so that you can begin to rebuild the trust that has been broken. But we have no control of the ultimate outcome, do we? Paul is very realistic when he says, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. The only thing we can have a control over is ourselves. We don't have control over the response of somebody that we are going to. So as we conclude this morning, let me remind you of the six steps that we have covered so far for a, a godly apology. Step one is to live with the truth of your injurious word or deed until you acknowledge the hurt you have inflicted. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Step two is to go to the persons or person involved and express regret by saying, I'm sorry. You're entering into the pain of that person. Step three is to accept responsibility by simply saying, I was wrong. No qualifications. Step four, if possible, make restitution. What can I do to make it right? The hotel manager refunded our money. (laughs) Step five is to genuinely repent, which means I will change my ways. And then step six is to request forgiveness by asking, will you forgive me? You know, as I listened to the last three messages Pastor Meyer gave on our giving of forgiveness, and I live with writing this message today, I realized how much human data I had on the subject of forgiveness in my life. I've been on both sides of the ledger. I've been hurt and had to muster up the grace to forgive. I have gone hat in hand and had to get down on my knees and ask somebody to forgive me. This is what Christians do. This is what we are about. We are followers of the master who said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We are called to forgive or ask for forgiveness. This is our distinguishing mark because we are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we hear your words. By this will all men know that we are your disciples if we love one another. And certainly where love meets reality is at the place of forgiveness. And so, Lord, I'm aware that as we live with current reality or past reality, current situations or past situations, that This stirs up a lot in us. And so we do ask for that reservoir of grace from which to draw to be the kinds of people that you call us to be, forgivers. Through Christ we pray. Amen.